So Charles Colson, some of you, a lot of you probably know who he is. I do that every time. Sorry. A lot of you know who he is. Um, so some of you know that um, when you hear his name, you think a Christian apologist. You may think of author. Uh, you may think of activist and advocate for prisoners and prison reform. And you may have a really high opinion of him, and I, I certainly share that. Um, or you may think of uh, the Nixon administration and uh, his reputation as the hatchet man, the guy that got the dirty deeds done. You might think of his uh, disgrace, uh, pleading guilty to a felony in the Watergate scandal and his imprisonment. Um, those are really contrasting views of Chuck Colson, don't you think? How do those two things go together? And the truth is that I think that we'll see from the passage today, and the truth is in, in Chuck Colson's life, God used these hard circumstances in his life to wake him up, to call him, and to draw him to repentance. So both of those things are true. Chuck Colson was the hatchet man. But that was in the past tense for him. He then became a son of God. And if you don't know his testimony, he had actually resigned from the White House um, and then was indicted for his role in the Watergate conspiracy. And in that time, God was working and God saved him. He became a Christian, but he didn't uh, have a press conference and announce it to the world. And he didn't give an interview to a selected journalist who would be friendly toward him and leak it out. He just followed Jesus. And in fact, he kind of negotiated a plea. He didn't feel like he was guilty of maybe initially what they charged him with, but he did feel he was guilty of breaking the law by obstruction of justice. So he pled guilty to that and he went to prison when many other people did not. He confessed his guilt. God changed him and he was ridiculed for his faith. Now, how does a person go from being the hatchet man for Nixon to a son of God, an advocate for prisoners and a Christian apologist and a man filled with joy? How does that happen? Well, it's through the grace of repentance. And so my prayer today is that as we go through this passage, we are reacquainted with repentance uh, and that we'll have joy. And I may have to tack the joy on to the end because that's what I was feeling when I was sitting over there was, oh, Tim, you miss joy. You miss joy. Repentance is grace. Repentance is joy. So I don't want you to miss that today. If I forget to say it, raise your hand and remind me at the end. Repentance, real repentance brings joy. Okay? All right. So we're in Genesis uh, 42. And um, as I told you, there's been a famine going on. So there was, Joseph had been in prison and then he had been elevated to the position of the second in command over all of Egypt. And he was wise. God gave him insight and he planned for this famine that he, God had shown was going to happen. And so they saved up all the grain and that they needed for seven years. And then the famine hits. And two years go by and this famine hits before we return back to Jacob and his, other bro- and his sons. So um, as we pick up, we see that uh, Jacob, he hears that, there is a fam- uh, that there's grain for sale in Egypt. And he's kind of upset because his sons aren't doing anything. And so I've never, I don't want to say I've never identified with the line more as a parent in the Bible, but I certainly identified with this line when he looked at his kids and he said, 
why are you just standing around looking at yourself? <laughs> Maybe that's not fair to my kids. But, I mean, you know, why? Why? Why aren't you doing something? That was a rhetorical question. It was like, um, don't you want to go to bed right now? You know, those aren't questions that invite a response. It was like, you should be doing something. You know, these are grown men. These are rough men. You know, these are guys that have murdered people, have lied, have stolen, have thrown their brother in a pit and sold him to slavers. These aren't, you know, just what's the word, milk toast. These aren't wimpy dudes, right? But Jacob looks at him. Why, why haven't you done something? And, it, you know, we have to ask the question a little. Why didn't they? I don't know. I don't know. So he sends him down to Egypt. Now, he sends his sons, but he doesn't send all of his sons. Do you remember jo- Jacob? What's, what's one of Jacob's besetting problems? Favoritism. So who does he keep behind? He keeps behind Benjamin. Um, and maybe not wrongly, because he says he was, con- you know, it's, he was concerned that some harm might happen to him. You know, the last time he sent his favorite out with to find the brothers, that favorite didn't come home. So maybe, maybe that's what Jacob is thinking, or maybe he's not thinking that. Maybe he's just, you know, couldn't bear the thought of losing the last son of Rachel, now his favorite son. So he keeps him. So the brothers, ten, go down. They go down to Egypt. So Joseph is, um, as part of his responsibilities, he's administering the distribution of all the grain and the, and the goods during the famine. And Pharaoh is becoming even more wealthy because he's, and he's pretty shrewd. You know, he's selling the grain to people. And if they want to buy it, they can bring land and give it to, you know, they can give the title to the land, whatever the title would be to the land to Pharaoh, or they can bring their livestock or they can bring money. And so as, uh, as Jacob's sons arrive in Egypt and they've brought money with them, they come to where the administration was going on and Joseph sees them. So we're talking 22 years or so since he last saw his brothers. I kind of wonder what he recognizes them. Of course, they don't recognize him. I mean, some of you have been back to a class reunion, right? And some of you haven't. (laughs) I never went back. But, um, you know, I'm not sure that people would recognize me. I don't look quite the same as I did when I was 17, you know. But he recognizes them. You know, they're all together, the 10, and he sees them. They don't recognize him. Maybe they don't recognize him because he's, you know, they don't expect him to be a ruler, the second in charge in Egypt. Maybe at best, if they think he's alive, they would expect him to be some slave in a, some market somewhere doing something. They don't ex- they're not even thinking about him. And I wonder, had they even thought about him? Maybe some had, maybe, maybe some had, but we have no indication of that, Right. And so they bow down before him. And Jacob, I mean, uh, and Joseph, it says, he remembered the dream that God had given him. Do you all remember the dream? The dream that the brothers were going to bow down to him? The dream that the brothers hated? The, one of the, I guess, maybe the final straw that broke the camel's back, he tells the dream that they're going to bow down to him. And as he's coming out, to see them on the plains. They see him from a distance in his coat and they say, here comes that dreamer. They hate him. But God's promises are sure. And here they are bowing down before him. So now, Joseph doesn't 
um, acknowledge them, that he knows them at that point. And we might ask why. Why doesn't he? Well, do you think he was maybe angry at that moment? Is it possible for God's people to be angry sometimes? And would he have been wrong to be angry? No. No. Maybe he was angry. Maybe it was grief. Maybe he had thought he had put everything behind him. So if you look at uh, chapter 41... Uh, God gave Joseph family. He gave Joseph sons. His first son he called Manasseh, which the commentators tell me means um, to forget. And then Joseph says, which was helpful commentary when the Bible interprets itself, he says, God has made me forget all my afflictions and my father's house. And you should know that sometimes people say things in the Bible that God doesn't endorse because I really don't actually think that God was endorsing that Joseph should forget his family. God had plans for Joseph's family and God had plans for Joseph. But he had put them behind him. You know? And I kind of wonder. I was reading over it this week and thinking, so how long has Joseph been in Egypt uh, as out of slavery, in, in power? So at this point, nine years. So he was seven good years where he was kind of governing all the, bringing in the grain. And then two more years of famine. You know, why didn't Joseph send somebody to go check on his family? You know, I don't have the answer to that, but I just kind of wonder, like, had he just turned his, he just put it behind him. I'm not going to, I can't deal with that. You know, I'm just curious. I mean, don't you think, uh, at least I was, you know, why wouldn't he do that? I mean, he didn't. It's kind of odd. You know, God, God's got some work to do, I think, in Joseph's life as well. And I think we're going to see that. Um, and maybe there was a tactical, strategic reason that he did it. You know, if he says, hey, I'm Joseph, you know, maybe they're going to just clam up in fear. That would have been a good response. Always a good response when you're talking to the authorities to say nothing. As a defense lawyer, I just want you to know that, right? So maybe they would have just said nothing, right? Or uh, maybe they would have started lying to try to figure their way out of the situation, present better facts. I mean, these guys are not truth tellers, right? So he doesn't. So he interrogates them and he interrogates them through an interpreter. So he doesn't talk to them in Hebrew. He talks to them, I suppose, and to his translator in Egyptian, and then the, Egypt, the translator translates to Hebrew. Okay? And he accuses them. It says roughly, rough words. He accuses them, you guys are spies and you're here to spy out our weaknesses because... Where do you come to get all the food? Or where would you, you know, if you're going to invade or try to steal the food, you want to find the weaknesses. That's what you guys are. You were spies. And, of course, I'm sure the men are put back. You know, these are tough guys, but they're in a foreign place, surrounded by foreign authorities, and it's just them. And they say, we're the sons of but one man. And we're not spies. We're honest men. Now, some of that was true. They were all the sons of one man. But like many falsehoods, there's a partial truth there, but they're not honest men. Had they been honest with their father about what they did? You think they were honest with themselves about what they did? And certainly had they been honest with God? No, they were not honest men. But Joseph continues to press them. And like a good interrogator, he, he asks them the same question again. Let's see what they say this time. And this time they say, um, well, we're actually 
you know, the sons of one man. There's 12 brothers. Um, and one of them is back in at home, the youngest. And then one of them is no more. And I mean, you can see the irony there, right? The one who's no more is standing there questioning them. So, um, Joseph presses them. And he, he kind of comes up with a test to see um, maybe if Benjamin is truly alive. Because if he just sends them away with maybe some goods or promises them, come back, I'll give you some more grain whenever you're out. How would he ever find out if they've told him the truth? So he devises a test to send them out. And he, and he says, you guys are going to go. Uh, you're gonna, uh, I'm going to send one of you home. And you, that person needs to bring back Benjamin. And everyone else is going to be in jail. And if you bring back Benjamin, you live. If you don't bring back Benjamin, everybody else is dead. That's the test. That's pretty harsh, right? Pretty harsh with his brothers. But these were rough guys. You know, they were kind of hard-headed guys. They were like us. They don't listen too well sometimes. So God, through Joseph, had to put them in a hard place. And so it says Joseph put them in custody for three days. Once again, the irony The ten brothers had Joseph's life in their hands. And they threw him in a pit and sold him. Now Joseph has the ten brothers' lives in his hands. And he puts them in custody. Do you think maybe he was reflecting on what happened to him at that time? Surely. I wonder what they talked about. I think possibly we can say that they began to ponder what was happening to them and how did this come about. Why? Would this man accuse them of being spies? So after three days, Joseph brings them out. But he changes his plan up a little bit. He says, you know what? Actually, I'm going to send all of you back but one. I'm going to send all of you back but one. And um, once again, if you return with Benjamin, then everybody is good. But if you don't, Simeon, he keeps Simeon. Simeon's done. But as by the life of Pharaoh, he swears, Simeon's, Simeon's dead. And when he tells them that, the brothers say they were trembling. They were trembling. And we see their first true confession. Their, true, their first true confession. Verse 21. Then they said to one another, In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother, in that we saw the distress of his soul, and he begged us, and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them and said, I told you not to sin against the boy, literally like the child. And now here is a reckoning for his blood. You see, there was a a confession at this point. There was finally a recognition that what they had done was wrong. They actually see their sin. Let's see. Do we have the Westminster... Confession, the Shorter Catechism. Let's put that on there. The Westminster Shorter Catechism has a, has a great question and answer. And it says, Repentance comes out of a true sense of his sin, or a true sense of our sin, and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ, and does with grief and hatred of sin turn from it unto God with full purpose of an endeavor after new obedience. So repentance... The first step in repentance is to recognize that we've done wrong. Now, that's a hard thing, isn't it? Does anybody here like to admit they're wrong? Do we create a culture 
where people can admit that they're wrong. I mean, you can get canceled for things that you said when you were a teenager and now you're, you know, in your 30s. Um, frankly, if your leaders mess up, they're generally out, right? In the church or out of the church. There's little opportunity for restoration and repentance, right? What about in our families? Do we, do we create an environment where people can come to us and, and confess that they were wrong, our kids, our spouses? Um, I, I think that some of you do. But I think it's hard for all of us. It's hard for all of us to create that environment. And yet, that's what's required for us as Christians. That we do confess and repent. And we want to create that environment. So these guys, God has finally broken through. They were in custody. The hard time broke through the hardness of their heart. Maybe some of you are in custody right now. You're in custody of a hard job. And it's shaking you up. And making you look at yourself. Or maybe you're in custody of a hard relationship. Or a hard illness. And it's, your life is difficult right now. Maybe God is using that to help you look at your life. I got off notes there, so let me just say. Not every affliction is God confronting you with your sin. You know, in fact... I can't quantify the how many, right? But don't just immediately jump to, oh, it's because I'm sinning that this is happening to me. But on the other hand, don't discount the possibility that maybe God is dealing with you in a way to draw you to repentance. Okay? So they recognize finally for the first time the truth of their guilt. In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother. And then we hear more details. We actually ignored his distress and his cries for help. When he was in the pit. I mean, remember these guys, right? What did they do after they threw him in the pit and he's screaming to be let out? They ate Whataburger. That's not even fast. You know, they took their time. They had a meal. And then, oh, they see the traitors and they, they said, that's what they did. And they finally, we, we did this. So there's a recognition and a confession. And, and when Joseph hears this, it affects him. See, Joseph isn't um, unmovable or static in this situation. God is bringing him along as well. It says it moved him so much that he, he was overcome by grief and he wept and he had to go out. So that they, you know, why is this, you know, it would be like, why is this stranger crying at this moment? It's kind of weird. It would be like if I burst into tears in the middle of a sermon, which could happen. You know, it would be kind of weird, but, you know, we'll just have to deal with it. So it affected him. So Joseph said, all right, this is the test. Y'all are going to go. And he gave them their grain and he put their money that they had brought to purchase a grain in the bags. Now that's kind of weird. Why did he do that? Why did he do that? I mean, it could be that, and, and their interpretation was this was some kind of trap, some kind of ploy to, to get them, you know? And, and it was a test at least, right? Maybe it was a kindness. You know, the Bible says the guilty flee when no one chases them. Maybe their own guilty hearts were forcing them to interpret all of their circumstances in a negative light. Maybe they couldn't see the grace of God providing for them. And maybe it was all of that. Maybe Joseph was testing them. Because now he's given them all this money. You know, they sold Joseph for what? Some silver. Now Simeon is here in custody. And... Um, he's given them all their money back. They could, they could come up with some other story to tell Jacob when they get home. They could keep the money. 
they could pull it out, you know. And so as they're driving, uh, driving, as they're walking along with their donkeys, carrying their burden, they stop to feed the donkeys. And what do they feed them? What do they have? Grain. So they open up the sack, one sack, right? One brother. And as he's pointing out, what pours out? His money bags. So that's the first hint that they have that something's going on. And immediately they do recognize that something's wrong. And they recognize that it's God's hand that's actually bringing all this to bear. Okay? They were afraid. It says these men were trembling. They were afraid. And uh, there was a recognition, finally, not only that they had sinned, but they had sinned against God. Do you recognize that? And that in repentance, there is many times going to be another person involved. And we could sit and argue that, of course, all sin affects everybody. But there might be someone directly involved. You've said harsh words to your kid. You are unkind to a coworker. But do you also recognize that every sin is a breach of God's holiness and that all sin is against God? So for real repentance, true repentance requires not that we just see our sin as ugly, but that we also recognize that it's against God. So they recognize that. This is good news. This is good. They're moving along here. They recognize that God has brought about this affliction because of what they did to Joseph. So they get home, and we're about to wrap up here. As they get home, they kind of think about how are we going to tell our dad what happened. And they don't tell him the full truth. They don't tell him about the threats. They don't tell him that Simeon's going to be executed. They don't mention the money bag that they found, right? So are these guys honest guys? No. God's still going to be working on them, right? And as they tell him, hey, but Simeon's there, and, and, and as they open up the grain bags, they see that all the money is there. And then chapter 42 uh, two tells us that all of them were afraid. Jacob was afraid. All the brothers were afraid. They didn't know what to make of it. But not only were they afraid, but Jacob is despair in despair. This is what he says. You have bereaved me of my children. You ten. You did it. You bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more. Simeon is no more. And now you would take Benjamin. All this has come against me. You know, in other words, you have ruined everything. And my life is over. And he says, no, you can't take Benjamin down. You know, I guess, sorry, Simeon, you're stuck, right? Can't take Benjamin down and rescue him. But the brothers actually respond. So what did the brothers do when they threw Joseph in the pit, they devised a scheme. They took his coat, they tore it up, they put blood on it, and they tricked their dad into believing that his favorite son was dead. Do you think they had concern and care for their dad? No. But we see some stirrings of that final aspect of repentance. The final aspect of repentance. Repentance involves a recognition of our sin, that it's against God. And a turning towards God that leads to a changed life. Now, the Old Testament is often a little opaque. And Genesis is a long book. So we'd have to get to chapter 50 to have more definitive confirmation of their hearts. But we can see here at least the beginnings of a change. Because what does Reuben do? Now, it was rash. You know, they're not wise men yet, maybe. It was rash. Well, I'll take Benjamin and I'll rescue Simeon and... 
if, you, if we don't come back with Benjamin, you can kill my sons. Not so good to be a son of Reuben, right? He's willing to kind of barter them away, no problem, right? And, and of course, uh, Jacob says no, and he has a history with Reuben. And then Judah later says, I myself will bear the, the blame. I will go down. I will take Benjamin. And if I don't return with him, let it be on me. You know, that doesn't sound like the Judah that was willing to get rid of his brother so he could advance himself. Now with this second opportunity, Judah, rather than getting rid of the favorite, says, I'll take the place of the favorite so that they can rescue Simeon and, and so they can get food. That's repentance. Repentance leads to change lives. Have you repented? Have you repented and believed the gospel for the first time? Have you lately repented and reaffirmed your belief that God is gracious for the millionth time? Um, you know, Jesus tells a parable of a sower. And I remember in... <laughs> I remember, now I can't remember. I remember in 1996, I was in a church and they were going through the Gospels. And the pastor was preaching on the parable of the sower, and it really unsettled me. The parable of the sower says, Jesus said that the kingdom of God is like a sower or a farmer who goes out to sow some seed, and he sows the seed on the ground, and it falls on a path, and it falls on some stone, and it falls in some weeds, and then it falls in some good ground. And the, the seed doesn't take on the stone path or on the path because the ground is hard, and it's choked out by the weeds, which Jesus says, those were the cares and concerns for this world. And I remember thinking what I care about most, or at least wondering, do I care most about my law practice? Do I care most about my Ford F-250? Do I care most about my physical appearance? Do I care most about my pleasure? And I, I was unsettled. You know, because Jesus says that the only one of those grounds actually received eternal life. And it was the one that bore fruit. So repentance does not come and salvation does not come because you bear fruit. But when you've been saved, when you have new life, it's going to spring up in you. And I wrestled with that and. I want you to wrestle with that. And I came to the conclusion, yeah, I was saved. God had saved me. <laughs> but it sure was uncomfortable, but also good. It was so good. So let me ask you, have you ever repented? You've recognized your sin is ugly and it's sin against God. And it puts you on the outside of him away from him, deserving of death and separation forever. And have you ever seen that sin, but then turn to look at Jesus? Because repentance, and I forgot to read this quote, repentance and faith always go together. John Frame says, repentance is not just believing that one is a sinner or feeling sorry for one's sin or even hating them. It's the very act of turning away from them. So there is a very close relationship between repentance and faith. 
Because repentance and faith are the opposite sides of the same coin. You can't have one without the other. Faith is turning to Christ and repentance is turning away from sin. And these two turnings are in the same motion. So are you headed away from Jesus? If so, repent and turn back to him. And believe the good news. Then he'll pay for all of the debt you owe God and give you a new heart and new life. Because he lived perfectly in your place, something you couldn't do. And he died the death you don't want to die. A death that's not sufficient to pay God's debts. And then he's raised and he's, a, he's now alive. And he offers you that same life. Have you, have you ever repented and believed that? And turned to Jesus? Well, good. If you haven't, you can. And if you have, there's joy though. There is joy in repentance. All right, we're almost done. Do you realize, Herman Bovink says that our repentance of a Christian is, is not like um, like our initial repentance where there is a fear of judgment in some sense, so we turn to God. Instead, repentance for a Christian is like coming to your Father who loves you, who will forgive you no matter what. Some of you don't know what that's like. Actually, we all don't always know what that's like, right? None of us fathers are perfect, but you have a perfect Heavenly Father. Do you know that as a Christian, it should be a joyful thing to be able to come to God and say, I really messed up. I'm sorry. You know, God's not going to reject you. He rejected Jesus, so he doesn't reject you. So there's joy in repentance. Today's the day. Today can be the day for you. Repent. Believe the gospel. Believe the good news. Let's pray.